Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, Brendan here with Mark, episode 217217, Friday, November the 26th, 2021. Mark, how are you? No, that was that, that, you? that was the end of our intro whack. Just disappeared. It was, a short, it was a short intro one because oh, I tell you what, the when I hit the record, the Mister Intro music was really weird. He sort of was very slow and then very fast, and I, I know in post production it will fix itself, but it was disconcerting. Very disconcerting. Yes, as I say, so I I chopped him off. So I chopped him off. And I hear you've um, been heading into some wild weather on your yes. travels. Um, um, as we were saying before we started, I'm staying with my relatives in Brisbane and uh, and it's been beautiful. Well, it's been on and off a bit of rain, but I was caught in the rain today and it does look like there'll be a few days of, uh, of um, wet and wild weather and, and we'll have to do some storm hunting um, and get send some photos. Uh, to, have you, do, you, do you ever look at Higgins Storm? Hunter's page? No, I don't. It's an Australian it storm. Yeah, yeah. Facebook page. Not a, not a bit a crazy, the storm, storm chases in, in the States, in the United States, Mark. Um, I don't think they're any less crazy in Australia, my friend. <laughs> I suppose not. I will You'll have to send me a link to the page and I'll have a little peek at the page. We've been a bit typical weather here, Mark, in Melbourne the old four seasons in one day and some pretty cold days and then some nice days, quite nice day the last couple, and then we've got some rain coming again. Sometimes we get all of that in one a day. Apart from that, I can't complain, Mark. I cannot complain. And I must admit I've ordered some more things from the Vet Guru's shop. Um, I think the um, most purchases have been for myself. (laughs) (laughs) The deliveries people. have been pretty um, good, Brendan. So I, I think that it's still not too late for, um, you know, I was worried that uh, that our, our marketing had, for Christmas had started too late and and people seeking gifts for workmates or partners who, who uh, would understand the subtle humour of the Vet Guru's podcast, they'd, they'd miss out. But I don't think the, the promptness of delivery has encouraged me to think that that yes. won't be the case. Get on to it, Vet Gurus, all one word, V-E-T-G-U-R-U-S, at etsy.com. So go to etsy.com and search for Vet Gurus and you'll find our shop. Get on to it. It's the gift that keeps giving, isn't it, Mark? Especially if you purchase something like our one of our range of, of cups, our mugs. Um, so you'll, be, you'll have a smile on your dial when you drink your coffee or your tea or your herbal tea or your boiled water or whatever your favourite drink is. So, yes, vetgurus.com and shop now for the holiday season or else you won't get it and the kids and all your staff will be very, very unhappy that they didn't receive their vet, vet gurus merchandise, mate. I think you have a review for us this week, dude. Do you? You said you had a review, so I have no idea what it is, but well, if well, you do I, have I, it, now I have a is few. the time. I have a few, but I thought, <laughs> I, thought um, I was the, the uh, 
I just wanted to shout out um, and give a high mark um, to both the organisers, the ABA, and the speakers at the UPAV virtual conference. Now, I know, I know you were there. Did you, did you listen to most of the presentations, Brendan? No, I didn't. Um, it was on a Saturday good. afternoon, and I did work till um, after you one need o'clock. No so excuse. I, I know you'll yes. be. Straight I was on certainly the there. For, well, let me tell you a story, Mark. I was certainly there for the quiz that was run by Tristan. Um, very, very um, well done. Um, very well produced. And I just happened to get thrown into a group. Um, they were randomly selected the groups. I think there was th- three, three groups for the um, for the quiz, and we were lucky enough to be in the group that ended up winning, Mark. Um, no thanks to me. Um, I think I answered one question. Um, well, Brendan, we I, I meant one, to ask you. We had what? We had one semi. Well, yes, yes, we had one semi-professional uh, quiz attendee who goes to quizzes all the time, um, which is Tegan, Mark. Um, you know Tegan very well. Apparently, she goes to weekly quiz meetings. Um, especially when there's no COVID restrictions um, at, at, at the local pub, etc. So she was she was on the ball and she answers most of the questions for us. Yeah, um, well, at the, before the quiz happened or, or during at the start of the quiz, I, I put my hand up and said the vet gurus will provide some merchandise to the winners because there was no prizes. Um, I've yet to send any <laughs> prizes um, to myself or the others in our group, but um, I must get on to that. Yes, I said they can select one product from the Vet Guru's store and I'll, I'll post it off to them. So I was silly enough to make that decision. I didn't realise there were so many people in each group. I thought there would only be one winner. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a few prizes to send out, but, yes, it was good. So I attended that and I listened um, to a couple of, partial presentations um, live. I know that they'll be available to stream shortly. They aren't um, for the next six or 12 months or so, and I'm looking forward to catching up with the rest of them. Did you listen to any of them live, Mo? I did. I did listen to um, them live. You know, I have a couple of other jobs like you on the Saturday. I had some things to do, and so I was in and out, but um, I was um, listening for most of the time. In fact, my commitments meant that I was dropped off i was on one of the other teams the competing teams and i i had uh my connection was cut so i couldn't um i couldn't compete for the wonderful prizes um but it was a uh, i was very impressed with uh, i know that um online uh, conferences have become you know the uh the the answer to covid and i really really look forward to um, i'm so hopeful that we can hold things together so that we can have a face to face in darwin next year it'll be humongous brendan it'll and be huge wouldn't it be wonderful for some of our listeners or subscribers to come from overseas and attend our conference in darwin so northern australia um, in july next year 2022 so it'd be fantastic if you're interested in that drop us a line vetgurus at gmail.com and we'll give you the details about the conference and you can catch up with us face to face um that could be a bit of a shock in darwin <laughs> and we'll say hello yes so was that your review mark the upav conference this week's i do have another one I do have yes, another one, but that's for next one. week. Excellent. So UPAV is Unusual Pet and Avian Veterinarians Group 
of the AVA here, the Australian Veterinary Association. Well, I'm going to jump into my one and only news story, Mark, and this is one that I know you know that I have spoken about previously, um, and I'm actually quite happy that this is happening. Um, California is a banning the sale of petrol-powered gardening equipment, Mark. Did you know this one um, before you saw this little I um, had heard report? that it was in the, in the winds, the decision. Yes, I knew state, it would make you happy too. Yes, state legislators in California have lawnmowers, leaf blowers and other equipment powered by small off-road engines, as they, as they call it, in their sites to reduce emissions. And it was interesting, some of their st- statistics that they quote there, that um, um, and they... They, they abbreviate them to SOAR, Small Off-Road Engines, S-O-R-E. Uh, they are expecting that the output of them will emit more pollutants, Mark, than passenger cars in 2021 um, by the end of this, this year. And they also claim that leaf blowers in California, um, using an hour of a leaf blower is enough to equal the emissions of driving a car, 1,700 petrol car, 17, or a combustion fuel car, 1,700 kilometres, Mark, um, the equivalent distance from Melbourne to Brisbane, where you are at the moment, Mark. So not only are they an eyesore on your ears, Mark, um, they're not great for the environment. Um, So they're planning to... um, the, the new rules due to come into effect on 1st of January 2024, which is the fast-track cut-off date for the ban, Mark, um, to eventually phase out the use of petrol-powered equipment such as leaf blowers in California, Mark. So I presume they'll be just um, still being able to use those sort of products but just um, electric ones, just not the petrol-powered ones, I presume, what is they planning to do there, Mark. What do you think about that, Mark? Well, I think it's, it's you know, what can you think? It's undoubtedly. Your good, good wife, thing. Kate, won't be happy, will she? Well, I was going to say to you, in our travels, um, I think I think that there's little excuse not to use a battery-powered um, uh, device these days. That, um, that you know, we've been travelling uh, in the Land Cruiser and we have a bunch of, um, of uh, you know, Kate's got a vacuum cleaner, we've got a chainsaw, a drill, um, we've got a whole bunch of stuff that uh, works off the the, um, the batteries, and and they all work just like you know um, petrol ones. They, there's no um, diminution in in power or cutting ability, or um, and um, and Kate loves her blower at home, the the leaf blower at home that's battery powered. So I don't see there's any reason that they should be burning fuel to do this. Get the solar panels up, charge the battery up and uh and um use the power of the Blow solar. Away. Yeah. Yes. I, I, I've well, got a, go, my man. only distress for you is that um they they're noticeably less noisy, but they're not silent. The electric, uh, the battery-powered devices. So you'll you'll still have yes. noise coming at you on the weekend, just when you don't want it. They need to go out and buy a rake. <laughs> well, my um, good exercise uh, news story does involve some exercise. It involves an ornithologist researching 
um, some information. He he discovered that uh, the beautiful red-billed chuff, um, a bird in Spain, um, um, sort of looks a little bit like a, I don't know, a, a cross between a currawong and a, um, I don't know, that big red bill. I don't know what to make it cross with, uh, but it looks cross. Um, and uh, the bones from this particular bird um, were found in some of the caves, the caves that anthropologists were uh, uh, researching and um, excavating and um, looking at archaeologically. Um, they found these bones in the caves um, uh, with tooth marks and uh, tool marks that suggested the chuffs uh, were being fed upon, that the Neanderthals uh, used the birds frequently um, as a food source. But catching the damn things is not easy. They they fly high and far um, each day uh, and uh, forage over a vast distance to consume insects and uh, seeds and fruit. And at night, um, their behaviour was to return them to their their usual roost. And this is where um, the logic of the Neanderthals comes into play. The birds would roost in large groups and generally in the same spot. Um, and even if they'd been disturbed at night or preyed on there before, they would tend to come to the same place. Um, so Juan Negro, the researcher involved, actually went out with his colleagues and just using his bare hands and don't know about the lamps part of it. He, he used some lamps to mimic a, uh, a bit of a fire, a bit of a torch um, to disturb the birds. And then they would often fly into, they would be dazzled and confused and often fly into dead end areas of caves. And uh, they had no trouble, um, you know, looking at 70 sites. The expedition snared more than five and a half thousand birds. So if they'd been so moved to uh, feast on uh, red-billed chuffs, they would have... Uh, not starved. Fortunately, all the birds were released unharmed, and uh, the the uh, the uh, exciting piece of uh, research on Neanderthal hunting and feeding has been added to the um, added to the database. Brendan, let me turn oh. myself off mute as usual. Um, so, is that where that saying comes from? That you're chuffed. Um, so if no, you find a, I don't think a whole so. lot of chuffs at the back of the um, cave, you're, you're happy and you're chuffed. No? Oh. I don't think so. Um, I found a word in this article, Mark, that I quite enjoyed, a taphonomist. A taphonomist, yes. A taphonomist, which is um, uh, somebody who um, studies. An expert. In a the paleontologist end. that deals with fossilisation, the brands of paleontology. Yes. And in this specific instance, an expert in Neanderthal diet. Has that for a specific um, job description? I'm a taphonomist dealing with Neanderthal diets. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do for a living? Yes. Um, yes. It's a lot of birds, isn't it, that they caught up there? Um, and, gee, they, they, they're not silly, these um, humans, are they? Um, they're pretty pretty efficient at trying to work out the easy way around to get a meal. Solving, so, yes. yeah. Problem solving, yes. Excellent. Okay. Thank you, Mark. Um, and we'll link to that at vetgurus.com. And 
we will have links to all the articles there. I think we'll jump into our main topic, Mark, which is, well, it's a huge topic, but we, as usual, we'll just do a bit of an overview and we'll touch on a couple of points that pique our interest. We wanted to talk about, or you specifically, Mark, um, antibiotic use in exotics and perhaps we'll touch on antibiotic resistance, um, what sort of bugs we're trying to hit and how and what sort of drugs we may consider using in exotics mark so do you want to kick off with a little bit of an overview of um and i think the, the reason why you wanted to pick on this subject one of the case reports in our online conference that you pr- just spoke about was regarding a ferret wasn't it indeed it was um uh, uh dr olivia clark who presented on a three-year-old male ferret who had um uh I can't even pronounce, but is it botryomycosis, the um, yes. uh, um, bacterial, uh, bacter- an atypical present abscessation, uh, nodular systemic uh, bacterial infection. Um, but the in- thing that really uh, piqued my interest about um, uh, Dr. Clark's presentation was the, um, the, uh, the, 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 um, the bacteria that was grown, that was cultured, um, was a, a methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, one of the um, superbugs, um, and it uh, just prompted me to think about how frequently um, veterinarians in unusual and exotic and avian practice have to think much. Well, I think they have to think uh, much more widely and better than their colleagues in general companion animal practice about the use of antimicrobials so that they are maximally effective um, and that they um that they don't fall into you know bad habits and uh, and um, were still possibly contribute to antimicrobial resistance and I think a big part of that problem is that we're often dealing with organisms that we will not be seeing in our in our little canine or feline or or other domesticated species there, Mark. Um, And that includes some fascinating organisms that we probably won't touch on today, but um, like our our mycobacteriums, et cetera, um, that are not uncommon in in our reptiles, for instance. So what's your approach to these ones, Mark? I mean, there are particular, I suppose, there's a typical armoury of antibiotics that are probably used or maybe we should say splashed around in exotics and typically the the comment is the batrial deficiency is what often people talk about don't they mark um that that's that's the one thing that people tend to reach for when they're dealing with an unusual pet that hey maybe we should be just throwing it on enrofloxacin um but perhaps that isn't the best approach to the problem is it mark well, I think, um, and I'm guilty of this, as, I'm as guilty of this as anyone else, so I'm certainly not pointing fingers at anyone else. I, I'm trying to suggest these are things that I should do more in my um, uh, practice, in, in my practice of exotic veterinary medicine. Um, and specifically, um, I'm thinking that we've got to do, that. The, what you said, hit the nail on the head as usual, Brendan, that... Um, we're generally dealing with things that are not that we're not familiar with, um, and that it's difficult to 
you know, look at literature and go, well, you know, there's a 96% chance that in this particular circumstance I'm dealing with a bug that has this sensitivity. Um, and so it's reasonable to start there and then think about working out from there. I think we've, I have to think much more, remind myself much more frequently um, that um, very early on in the diagnostic process, um, uh, before I start using any antibiotics, or it's certainly when I have to contemplate changing an antibiotic because it hasn't worked, I need to think culture, culture, culture. Um, maybe a little bit of histopath as well, because as you said, many of our species will be affected by organisms like mycobacteria, and that's going to be obviously difficult to culture. But um, um, that testing, I think I need to prompt myself, remind myself to do it much, much more frequently. Me too, Mark. And I think there's even one step backwards from that, that we need to always remind ourselves in that, hey, um, one, we may have a client that thankfully we're getting less and less of them as time goes on that will say, um, my animal X has an infection, it needs to go on antibiotics and they're unhappy unless that animal goes home on a course of antibiotics, regardless of what antibiotics and regardless of whether there's an infectious process there. Um, but you, you still have those clients that it takes a little bit of time, doesn't it, Mark, to convince them to, to walk through the process of, hey, perhaps we haven't got an infectious process there. And secondly, directly related to that is going back to that clinical examination history, um, examination of that patient and realising that in that individual, after examining it, there's, there may be a high chance that this individual, there is not an infectious process going on there. And the classic with that, you know, that always sticks out in my mind is the reptiles. And I'm sure you're going to say exactly the same thing, that you have a reptile that's not quite right. It may have some mild respiratory signs, for instance, and it could all just be due to poor husbandry and it just needs a bit of time a bit of warming up a bit of fixing of the environment cleaning of the environment and we we there's always that temptation to jump in and think there's an infectious process there and even if we don't do diagnostics on that individual um, perhaps waiting to see how it responds to the basics and, and basic care and husbandry and um, then starting to think okay perhaps if there is a infectious process there what steps do we need to do to determine if it is one including doing blood tests etc and cytology and aspirates which we may touch on a little bit here and in-house examination cytology um diff quick exam etc and then maybe our cns mark precisely brendan precisely um and i think the um um uh, um I think just not um, flipping open the NRO, just um, trying to think about that whole process. Um, and, uh, and that's probably the difficult thing that I find, finding the mental space to like step back and, and think, okay, well, we have a respiratory animal, but the husbandry is awful. So before we put it on antibiotics, um, we're going to correct that and then see how things go from there. Um, I think that's a, a much more important thing. And I think also we've got to keep in mind that even um, many of our exotic species are um, herbivores who depend on their gut flora. And while we're all aware of the, you know, your, your uh, 
penicillins or uh, um, beta-lactams knocking out the gut flora of uh, guinea pigs and rabbits, um, even if you're not using those antibiotics, your, your antibiotics are still going to have an effect on the gut flora and um, and uh, you want to avoid that if you can at all. You want to minimise that effect. Um, so I think thinking about it in the first instance is is critical. Yes. Let's get it, as usual, it's getting back to basics. It, it's starting to not think that everything is going to be an infectious process here and thinking a lot about husbandry issues, being an unusual pet, and then deciding, okay, perhaps we do have an infectious process that may be happening with this individual. How do I go about confirming or trying to disprove that? And what sort of test would we do, Mark, in clinic? What tests do we do? <laughs> um, well, I was going to. I was thinking of um, specific examples rather than more general. Um, I know yes. we generally come at these more generally, um, but I've found over the years one of the things that's helped me, particularly with reptiles. Um, has been has been blood culture, and that's often rather than pulling out um, what looks like it might be an abscess, or um, uh, you know, um, uh, at times we've flushed uh, air sacs, we've stuck the endoscope in uh, to a snake's respiratory tract and got samples from there. But probably the most um, useful uh, test that I've conducted in reptiles in this circumstance for culture and sensitivity is blood culture um, and making sure that you've got some blood culture tubes and uh, that um, that you're prepared. Uh, they go out of date, so having them current and that you're prepared to draw enough blood to, um, to set those tubes into growth phase. Um, that, that, uh, and because many reptiles, they seem to be happier to live with a few bugs in their circulatory system for a period of time, um, they definitely get sick when they're septic, but um, they, um, the, you, you are very much more likely to get um, living culturable bugs from that location than often from a, a, an abscess. So that's probably one of the things I always turn to when I've got a, when I'm confident the white cell count is indicative of an infection, the animal's behaviour uh, and other clinical history pushes me in that direction, but I can't get the sample from the lesion or um, uh, it's uh, unrewarding, then I look at the blood, Brendan. Yes. Well, you touched on one of the things that I was trying to gently hint <laughs> to, <laughs> and that's do it, taking bloods for that animal. So the, the sorts of things we can do in clinic um, or think about um, to try and narrow down that it's an infectious process, apart from a blood culture mark would be um, taking a sample from the suspected area if it's an abscess, um, doing in-house, diff quick, et cetera, um, but certainly doing blood. So what sort of what sort of general things would we be seeing on the blood, on the CBC mark that might point us towards, hey, this perhaps does have a, an infectious process there that we might have to start thinking about antibiotics? It's the same as um, our other companion animals. There's often a, a uh, um, an anemia, often of chronic disease, um, and we would expect there to be a heterophil response, an increase in the heterophil numbers, and likely a monocytosis as well. Um, so it's just 
like you said before, back to basics, the sort of things that we would expect more or less to be associated with a bacterial infection. Yep. So having said that, Mark, you did. we have mentioned one particular antibody that has been used and, and effectively in anrofloxacin. There is a couple, two or three others that... Um, are still used um, and seem to work quite well, but quite interesting that I'm finding that increasingly that one of the antibiotics that we was our mainstay um, for suspected infectious processes, especially in reptiles, um, does not appear to be as effective and we've had some, funnily enough, um, some resistance to it. Are you finding the same sort of things with some of the... Well, species you, that you've been dealing with? If you're talking about ceftazidum with um, with reptiles, that's certainly been my uh, clinical impression um, that uh, where um, all those years ago when I first started using it, it was um, uh, almost miraculous how consistently it uh, turned things around. Um, and now even in the face of... Um, of uh, of culture and sensitivity results, which suggest it's likely to be uh, effective. Um, there are many times where um, it just does not have the effect that it once uh, once did. I think I, I worry that um, we have more snakes in captivity now that are affected by um, subclinical viral infections um, that yes. uh, um, that mean they just don't recover from superfit, you know, superimposed bacterial infections um, but I also think there may be um, a changing pattern of sensitivity amongst the snakes that we see so I don't I, know that, I agree that it? yes that was the exact antibiotic I was thinking of and I've had a couple this year um, which were quite dramatic and that I had commenced them on keftazidine and uh based on past experience, not on a culture with, with the individual. And we had a poor response over over a couple, one or two courses of it. Um, and then we did a culture follow-up culture and sensitivity, and they were both resistant, completely separate cases to that antibiotic, and yet they were highly sensitive to enrofloxacin. <laughs> Um, so we swapped it back to that. Whereas in the in the old days, when I think when we, you and I first started our reptile medicine mark, um, that's what we would be reaching for um, initially, um, and then we switched over. Yeah, so it's quite interesting that that um, yeah, I think we have we are developing some resistance to these to these animals and it just uh, to, to these antibodies yes. and it just um, adds to the um, importance of um, keeping in mind that culture and sensitivity testing at at some point um, i don't you know i'm not suggesting that before any drugs are dispensed that um, you know if you use common sense in choosing the drugs then that's fine um, but if it's not working i, I think um, pretty early on in the piece you want to suggest to the owners look it's not unheard of to get resistance. We need to grow some of these bugs and see what they are and what will work against them. Yes, that's right. And I certainly don't do a culture and sensitivity on every single um, animal that comes in uh, as far as exotics, uh, although I suppose in theory that's what we should be doing with ones that we have suspicion of um, 
an infectious process there. I think the other thing to remember for those listeners who aren't used to dealing with reptiles, especially um, very often, is that we're often treating for a much more prolonged course, aren't we, um, with the antibiotics for, the, for those animals because that's what they seem to require. Um, and that, that, you know, my minimum sort of course is at least two or three weeks for a reptile. Would that be similar to your experience, Mark? I, precisely the same and I almost have a little bit in my head if I I was going to treat an infection in a dog or a cat for seven days then I'm going to treat it for four times that time um, you know four weeks in a reptile and it's not it would be a regular thing for us to think we're going to treat a, a severe um, completely diagnosed uh, respiratory infection that doesn't have any viral complication, um, we're going to treat that maybe for three to six months. Yes. Now, we should talk about a little, I think you've got a couple of little tips about the culture itself, Mark, the culture and sensitivity, especially from abscesses. What's your recommendations as far as trying to maximise the chance of actually culturing the bug that's causing the condition, assuming we have an abscess there? Well, it's the same. Uh, this is a... Um, what jumps to mind here is uh, my rabbit abscesses, those uh, those um, gigantic structures that uh, erupt from the mandible of rabbits and you do wonderful surgery and you get heaps of uh, pus. Sometimes that pus is um, uh, toothpaste consistency, other times it's uh, hard and caseous um, and it looks like you're going to be able to, you know, it looks foul, it stinks. It looks like you're going to be able to grow bacteria for years from it um, but that pus is often uh, you know broken down bacteria and and uh, uh, inflammatory cells and and I always have to go looking for the capsule whether it's a lizard whether it's a rabbit I've always got to get those samples from the periphery um, to give ourselves any chance of getting a decent culture yep I agree totally. It's not just going into the centre of that abscess and and getting that nice cheesy pus. Um, Save the expression get... of pus for your TikTok. I say, Brendan, and get <laughs> and send that to the pathologist. Yes, yes, and asking your friendly laboratory to make sure that they realize that, that sample you're sending them is from an exotic species because it might just get thrown in with the culture for everything else and that they don't pay particular attention to culture in or culture media um, that might be appropriate for that particular species or, or bugs that are commonly seen and that includes for instance the general comment that you know we may be dealing with a greater percentage of anaerobic um, bacteria with these infections so you need to and make the laboratory alert that that's the case. And if you if you're doing lots of um, cultures and, and sending off lot, lots of bloods and, and samples from exotics, um, then they'll usually be used to the fact that hey, this is coming from Mark's clinic, so we need to be on our ball and making sure that we're um, culturing it up on an appropriate medium plate. The good news, Brendan, is that um, most pathologists love something that's a little bit outside the ordinary that gets them to exercise those neurons and think about it. Um, and my experience has been where we give them good information, they give us good information back. Um, but it's where 
they don't know where this has come from or why we're sending it to them or what we want done with it or what the clinical picture is, um, that then gets to be frustrating for them and frustrating for us and ultimately a disaster for the client because we don't harvest the most useful information. So I, I'm like you. I've got to keep writing more and more on those pathology forms so that... Uh, exactly. And I've, I don't know, there must be something happening recently here um, with the samples I've sent, Mark, even from, from just dog and cat simple skin lesions that I'm sending off and I put a, a two or three line comment history about um, how long the lump, lump's been developing, etc. And I've been getting back these really profusely um, thankful um, email and reports from the pathologist saying thank you for the very detailed history um, because they may not they must be getting a lot of samples where there's literally no history supp supplied and these are very short histories that I'm providing them and yet they're they're very very happy to see that history and, and, and it makes it I think the the um, interpretation so much easier for them doesn't it I think um, if they get a decent history. Now, there's one other thing, one last thing I wanted to mention about antibiotics, um, and that is um, our professional association, the AVA, the, the organisation who hosts UPAV, the organisation, um, they have an excellent series of antibiotic prescribing guidelines, um, particularly for um, uh, for production species, and the one that I refer to quite regularly is the, uh, the the prescribing guidelines for poultry. It's one of the things in um, in uh, uh, practice um, that you are going to deal with pet chickens, and you do want to be aware of the the uh, the best practice in your state. There is some differences between different states in antibiotic use in uh, food producing animals, uh, but the AVA has an excellent document describing that, uh, those guidelines um, uh, for um, poultry. Yes, and I think, I think at one stage they had a really good A4 little poster sort of um, summary. That we yeah that we had up in our waiting room Mark that talks about the you know the client pet veterinarian the veterinarian and client pet relationship and um, appropriate use of antibiotics and uh, I must admit I have um, taken the client out into the waiting room and pointed at that and say have a read of that <laughs> <laughs> um, um, believe it or not I have done that. Um, uh, when when I, I do say, believe just give it. me the antibiotics, just give me the antibiotics, and I want to take my animal home. Yeah, um, yes, and and legislation wise, I, I think things are a lot tougher, aren't they, Mark? And you could probably speak um, on that a, a little bit more. Um, that we have to make sure that we are providing the right, not the right advice, not because it's the right thing to do, but also because it's the right thing to do legally as well. And we um, may find ourselves foul of the law, so to speak, Mark, um, if, we're, if we're prescribing the wrong antibiotics for that chicken. And I do think it's a there's, there's different emphases here. I, 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 most generally, I'm, I'm keen to advocate for... Um, sensible use of antibiotics so that we limit the chance of resistance. Um, but also there are um, trade implications. There's uh, um, once antibiotics enter the, the human food food chain, um, 
there are some pretty significant consequences. And so just making sure that you don't fall foul of those and that you use the the uh, appropriate antibiotics um, uh, so that they don't enter the human food chain. Um, that's, a, that's a pretty critical thing. So, And I know that um, uh, UPAV has had a couple of sessions in previous conferences where they talk about um, uh, the... Yes, we've had some round tables, I think, haven't we? Yeah. We've had lots of round tables with <laughs> many beers on them, Brendan. <laughs> Any, well... I think a lot of what we covered, it, 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 it hopefully is fairly logical and it makes sense, but there's some, some important points and differences, I think, compared with um, antibiotic use in our, our um, other commonly seen domesticated species there, Mark, but um, I think it's increasingly. The good news is, and I'm finding, and you probably have over the, over the, decades that we've been practicing mark that um clients are becoming more and more um um used to or uh, that's probably a better way of describing it um um i do think i think their expectations have changed expectations have changed yes they don't immediately think that you're just going to give them the antibiotics i don't think that's that you know um it was always a battle um to you know that's what people even in uh, dog and cat practice, the owners expected you just to hand over some antibiotics. Um, but that certainly changed. But I, I think it, the corollary of that is that the other expectations have also been raised. Clients expect much, much more. Um, they're, they're much harsher on um, shortcuts, I think. Um, and so always uh, advising people to go the you know, full distance and get the testing done. They may choose not to, and that's then their choice if you've offered it to them. Um, but if if a veterinarian chooses to um, not offer those tests and uh, and just go with uh, um, a possible antibiotic and it goes all pear shaped, then then that's very difficult to defend that uh, clinical Absolutely. Offer the gold standard and record it um, in the client-patient history as well. And you've you're also not only doing the right thing, but you you're covering yourself in case the client declines that and opts for the uh, um, the second or third best there. Um, and that's their right to to do that. Um, and um, you can sleep at night, Mark. Um, and speaking of sleeping at night, I've got to get out of here, Mark. And I think Mr. Outro is about to start. And we'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening. Vetgurus.com, <laughs> <laughs> go to the Etsy shop. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.